it's going to be easy to say in future, oh, look, you know, that person started getting obese and anxious and depressed when COVID-19 happened. But let's, as a society, go, there might be more to this, so let's not just fob it off as another part of the obesity epidemic. Let's start asking, is the obesity epidemic a consequence of deeper psychological problems with deeper psychological and physical causes? Yeah. And let's have policy settings to help people get to the actual cause of what they're suffering. I'm joined today by David Olney. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here as ever, Tim. And a very special guest. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure to be with you. Probably shouldn't even call you a guest anymore, part of the furniture. So, uh, <laughs> But it is, as ever, always lovely to have you. Gentlemen, I've been looking forward to having this discussion today. And I think for a few reasons, and one of them is that I'm finding these kinds of Zoom calls increasingly harder to organize and motivate uh, amongst my friends. And I think a pattern that I've been noticing is that in this social isolation, we are... Um, are disconnecting obviously this was going to happen from one another because we don't have the normal kinds of routines that uh, allow us to see each other every day whether that be at school or work or whatever it is and it seems that we need it more and want it less at this point i'm definitely noticing that in people yeah that that disconnect um, you really have to fight against and uh, it reminds me of a book which we all read last year and uh, lost connections by johan hari i thought we could talk about that today Absolutely. Um, to to respond to your first thing there, Tim, about what we think is happening with people, and I've noticed the same thing. I think what's happening is so much of our interaction prior COVID nineteen with people is we kind of just bumble through it. Like, well, we're going to go in the city and do X. Well, we know we'll run into a few people. We're going to go to uni. We know we'll run into a few people. We're going to go to work. We know we'll run into a few people. We're going to go to this pub and meet two friends, but they might invite another five of our friends. So we know we'll run into a heap of people by accident. And I think what we're seeing is that deliberately connecting is something people normally don't do a lot of. And people are hitting the tired wall from being deliberate. Mm. Yeah. Tired is maybe a good way to, to put it. Um, yet I think that people can re- be really energized by these things. So it's a bit like exercise in that sense. Sometimes you feel you've too... got to start to get the benefit and yeah. people aren't used to having to deliberately start. They're just used to bumbling through the social because it's straight in front of us and getting the benefit without knowing quite how they got there. Mm. Mm. And I think there's also an element and this is slightly tangential. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are finding this, but it is harder now to talk, to think about things to talk about because we're not doing so much with our days, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've had the conversation goes something along the lines of this is what I'm doing every week, every day. Yeah. Mm. This is when you find out who reads constantly or who is just a lifelong learner who rather than vegging on Netflix is watching every strange little documentary they can find on YouTube. Yeah. So I've found that people break into two groups with that most definitely. There's the ones who always would have talked to me about books and weird documentaries who still do just more. And the ones who would have normally told me what they're binging uh, and they still tell me that, but you can start to hear with them that it's not as satisfying as it once was. Mm. Mm, Interesting. 
Well, it is one of the Lost Connections from Johan Hari's book, which is a wonderful little kind of collection. It's meant to be the nine main causes of depression. You know, seven of them are psychosocial, seven of them, seven of them are psychological, I guess, more so, and then the other ones are um, physiological, biological, the other two. So they're good summaries, I guess, of the things that we could be could and should perhaps be on top of, um, especially in a time like this, that will help us uh, get through it perhaps even better than we, uh, on the other side, uh, than we entered. But I think we're in danger, let's say, of a lot of these as, you know, some of them are not relevant at all, but yeah, it's it's an interesting time to have this discussion. Yeah. Um, Peter, I want to chuck it to you because you've raised an, an interesting point before with me, which is that Johan Hari talks about this as if we treat depression with drugs when Johan kind of alludes to it being more aptly treated by um, practices and things mm-hmm. like that. And I think there's, uh, I guess, a, a word of caution. I know that you've described it really well in the past about how antidepressants are a bit of a platform. So I'm hoping you could share some thoughts. Well, I just to give our listeners a bit of background, I was a foreign journalist in 2013, 2014, 2015 in uh, the Lao PDR in Southeast Asia. I covered a lot of air crashes there firsthand. And that caused me some quite severe problems with depression and anxiety when I got back to Australia. And I languished for a couple of years in a pretty depressed state, chronically depressed state before I went and got help. That help was in the form of SSRIs, selective um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, or antidepressants. And they actually worked really wonderfully for me. This book, Lost Connections, it looks at the causes of depression and anxiety in our society and finds that there are some systemic environmental things. And when the environmental factors are alleviated, the anxiety and depression is also alleviated. But uh, I think what you're getting at is that my note of caution previously has been that if you are experiencing severe depression and anxiety or something that you suspect is depression and anxiety, try the medication anyway. If you're in real trouble, it's it can be a real real lifesaver. I think it was for me, actually, possibly quite literally. Um, So even though we're going to be talking today about some of the environmental things that cause depression, SSRIs and talking to your GP about depression is a really fantastic um, uh, first step, one that isn't as scary as you might think and one that can um, really help you and people around you. So with that little caveat, I uh, I think we're safe to proceed. So what we could really say is that they provide that boost to allow someone to take action when otherwise they may not be able to take any action. Yeah, exactly, David. You know, I was in a space where I wasn't doing any exercise. I wasn't being as social as I could have been. I wasn't eating correctly. And the SSRIs gave me the energy um, you know, d- d- people in a depressed state have a slowdown of their of their kind of um, of their neurocircuitry, which is in a partial cause of the sluggishness that depressed people feel. And for me, the SSRIs lifted my energy up enough that I was able to start implementing some more key changes: diet, exercise, social interaction, fulfilling my commitments, and that sleep. sleep yes, yeah. good sleep and good circadian uh, sleep rhythm. And that had these flow-on kind of compounding effects on my, on my mental state. But yeah, 
little a little step up. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, Johan Johan Hari does a, a a good job in the book of painting the narrative that we've had, where we didn't we didn't quite used to think that depression was biological, and then we started to um, adopt that narrative that the whole thing was just a, a chemical imbalance, and that it could effectively only be fixed with with drugs because it, it was almost purely biological i'm sure to some people um and then we're starting to have to break that narrative again mm-hmm. uh but that isn't to say that genet- genetics and, and 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 biology has nothing to do with it there's a pretty strong case for genetic inheritance on on depression um, it's a reasonably high rate yeah but then we're into kind of the nature versus nurture thing where mm-hmm. most of the studies say now is it's nature via nurture so you can have a genetic predisposition, but you need to be in the situation to kick it off. So what we're likely to see with a genetic disposition towards depression is that because the generation before you also suffered it, and if it has adversely affected their life, then you are going to be exposed to the adverse effects on them, which are likely to lead to adverse effects on you. But that is as much because the situation set us off as your genetic predisposition. Mm. So people need to realize that if the situation changes, it ups their change, you know, their chances of being able to effectively uh, avoid it and recover from it. So it's not a foregone conclusion that, you know, if someone in your family before you, you know, had serious depression or anxiety that you will too, and that you won't potentially be more successful at dealing with it than they were, because the more information we have in combination with, you know, the drugs that provide that opportunity to respond and I guess that's the interesting thing with Johan Hari's perspective. Yeah, he was doled out the antidepressants by his doctor, but with no assumption that anything else was required. Mm. So there was a pep, but always followed by the flatness that nothing else had changed. None of the underlying circumstances had been altered. In a sense, it kept wasting the opportunity for him to improve his situation. Yeah, he, he kept having that, I guess, that platform. Yeah, the opportunity mm. is a good way to put it. Johan makes the the case, I think, nearing the end of the book about neuroplasticity and how he he and and basically he gives everyone the kind of autonomy and and know how I suppose um, to change their situation because you know there might be some genetically uh, some genetic traits or or there might be some kind of situational situation that may predetermine you for something like depression. Uh, doesn't mean that you are stuck in that state nor are you um determined or fated to have a depressive episode um which is kind of the language that i like to describe it in um and i think we've raised this on the podcast before david is that this is a william glasser point is that you know depression is um a trait that you basically have ownership or of or that has ownership over you Mm. um i guess as some people would describe it whereas you know when we talk about other kinds of emotions like grief we say that we are grieving um that it is something that you you pass through it's an active thing that you are involved in and you make choices to engage with it in the case of grieving because grieving is healthy Mm. and the point is some anxiety is very healthy it helps you realize what's going on Feeling depressed at times is a good indicator that perhaps you need to reflect on what's going on in your life at the time Mm. and work out what you can take better control of or get help with. Mm. So it's not like you should go through life never ever feeling any anxiety or never ever feeling down. 
that would be abnormal and would be some sort of pathology in itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think another thing that we would, we should possibly more probably mention is, you know, things like, you know, glandular fever, or um, I think you can have like thyroid problems and things like that as well. That and just um, physically knock you down and put a mental yeah. state much like depression. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, whilst depression is a result of some of the environmental factors and things that are out of your control uh, happening to you, and it is something that you respond to, you are still, you still have the power to um, react to it. You are not powerless against a depression. So in your um, reaction, you can potentially overcome some, if not all of it. That's right. So and really, this is the thing. The people who thought the pills would work on their own. Mm. So each time Johan Hari got a stronger pill, yes, it was a little bit better for a while, but mm. because he wasn't given the other tools that he went out and found, and just from the book where he had to go to nine different places to talk to nine different bunches of experts to get his nine you know, predominant causes of depression and anxiety. Well, none of those people had the full bundle either. Yeah. It took his motivation to go and collect all the information to go. Now here's a toolkit where you work out which of these things you could do something about to re-empower yourself, to transform your situation at least a little bit. So we get a sort of a marginal gains perspective. If you can spend some time in nature, tick. If you can do some exercise, tick. If you can spend time with people that care about you, tick. And you just get as many positives going as you can until you can build up some level of momentum. At the beginning of the book is a wonderful description of when Johan Hari is in Vietnam doing research. And he'd gone out and bought himself this lovely, big, shiny, I think it was an apple from memory, and washed it and ate it and then got progressively sicker and sicker and spent days with food poisoning only to go out to do research and to finally meet a lady who had survived uh, the Vietnam War and kept her family alive. And she took one look at him and went, you better take this guy to hospital. He looks really sick. So get him in hospital and essentially work out that the reason he is so sick is because he's eaten a piece of fruit that's been sprayed with all sorts of wacky chemicals that he should have actually peeled the skin off and got rid of all the toxins. Instead, he's ingested all of them. And he's feeling nauseous and the world is spinning. And you know, he asks the Vietnamese doctor who's looking after him, you know, doctor, can you ease the symptoms? Can you stop the nausea? Can you stop the world spinning? And the doctor's like, no, I need you to feel the symptoms because without the symptoms, I'm not going to work out what's going on with you. And Johan Hari talks about the fact that that realisation, ah, without the symptoms, you don't know what's going on. Maybe everything you feel when you're depressed is a symptom of the deeper condition. And if you can work out what the components are of the deeper condition, then by changing them, you can reduce your symptoms. So that's the point where the book begins, which I found it got me hooked in like a good sort of crime thriller from the first minute. Well, very much so. And, and possibly one of the best points comes from his experience in Southeast Asia as well. Where yeah, don't eat the fruit without peeling it. Well, that. And even the anecdote of the village uh, and, and the doctor who has a very different idea of what an antidepressant is. Mm. When you know, the drug companies basically went around the world trying to export, export all the different kinds of antidepressants um, to all the different countries who they thought could use it, basically they had a lot of trouble trying to explain what antidepressant was to different cultures uh, because 
they might have already had some idea of what an antidepressant was, but it was very different to what it like I guess the drug was. So in I think it was Thailand, I'm not sure, it might have might have been Cambodia as well. That's possibly why he was there. He spoke to a doctor who, who told a story of basically why he refused being sold antidepressants to then give to uh, the people in the village was because there's an anecdote of a, a farmer who trod on um, a, a landmine in his rice paddies while he was basically tending to them one day and uh, I think lost one or both of his legs and basically was going to never be able to walk again. And this is, uh, I guess, the first chapter, which is a disconnection from work, I believe, which was that the farmer then found himself incredibly depressed because everything that gave him meaning, which was you know, basically tending to his farm and, and, and I guess feeding people in some ways, if you want to take the broader meaning, was taken away from him because he was in, in, incapable of being able to do that, at least to the extent that he was before. And so the town got together and basically pulled some funds together and, uh, and, and bought this farmer a cow who was able to uh, do all the manual labor part of, uh, of, of his farming, of his agriculture. And um, he was basically able to get back to the kind of production that he was doing before. Um, and this relieved or cured his depression that he was experiencing from being incapable of doing his work. And so the doctor who was basically looking at, who was, who was being sold antidepressants, refused them because his idea of an antidepressant was exactly that, fulfilling someone's need with buying a, a cow or whatever it is. It might something tangible that will genuinely transform the situation. Yeah, I'm not sure I told that very well, but <laughs> well, I guess we can go from there. Let's say we've got disconnection from work. Let's apply that to this very period. A lot of people are now without work and some people are much farther from the outcomes of their work. Um, they're fairly disconnected, disjointed, let's say, from what they're doing, uh, seeing as if they're w working at home, the fruits of their labor, I guess, are not exactly in front of them. So not just for the people who are now out of work, it's also for the people who uh, are still working but yeah they can still experience some of these disconnections or or, or experience some disconnection from their work mm. what, what's so fascinating is that we we actually recorded a podcast on this book last year um uh, which uh, due to a long story was um, got lost which is why we're back doing this one but no no it's not a bad thing because What's so fascinating about this book is that is that Hari kind of wrote it as a indictment of the modern world, the modern way of life, the increased disconnection from other people and uh, nature and uh, meaningful work, etc. And what's so great about coming back and recording this now instead of last year is that we can see all of these bullet points all of these points where people have become increasingly disconnected and that's driven depression and mental illness and we've seen all of those points or many of those points exaggerated and emphasized even further with this coronavirus containment you know I, I hope the viewers can kind of see how these things are hugely affecting the modern world in general but maybe they can also reflect on how these might be particularly affecting them at the moment not to skip too far ahead so uh, I mean, the cause too is disconnection from other people, just in general. Yeah, which, which is heavily is... related to work. Mm. So yeah, it's the irony at the moment. It, almost all the work I do can be done from a laptop anywhere. 
So I'm very lucky at the moment because I get that sense that because all the work I can do can be done from anywhere my laptop is, whether it's, you know, working on stuff, um, you know, with John Bruni or working on podcasts or teaching for the uni or anything else I do, the work is still there and the meaning in the work is still there. But that poignant thing of the meaning in work being separated from the people you would normally sit beside while you're doing it. Because even though you only need your laptop to do the work quite often, you deliberately take your laptop and go and sit with the people who you like to work with. Mm -hmm. So there's an irony here that work and people are so heavily related. So if you know, we look at the interesting figures that are coming out across the world of who's being most obviously affected, it's younger people, particularly those working in service industries and hospitality. So not only have they lost their work, they've lost very social work where they were very much connected to the people they worked with and in close physical proximity and often engaging with, you know, people at work, the customers. And so something, and I can't remember if we were touching on it before we started recording or, or since we've started the show, but um, we were also talking about the, the necessary nature. I think you might've mentioned in the intro, Tim, the necessary nature of these personal interactions, you know, I'm a super introverted person. I hate people. I hate people. But even I'm feeling it in this coronavirus thing because I was obliged to go out and interact with people sometimes, you know, for, uh, for work or for, um, uh, for shopping or for kind of expanded social events that I was required to go to. And, and I didn't realize exactly how much I benefited from those necessary social engagements now that the necessity is is gone now that um you know we're social isolating i think it struck me at least how much i actually did need that little modicum of uh, of interaction in my days no, um, i'm very much oh sorry you go first tim i'm also imagining that people are feeling a, a bit of compounding in that sense because it, it, even if you are at home with a significant other your family whatever it may be now the fact that you are working from home means that this place of kind of relaxation has been turned into a place of work and uh it's kind of blurred the lines and uh, as to how you interact with others and um and what you do in your home space meaning that i, I even think that the social connections that you might have had previously at home are in danger of being slightly ignored for instance uh my partner and i made a very deliberate a deliberate effort to uh spend time with one another yesterday even while we're at home we've been spending days together in the house weeks is maybe even better description but to make sure that we sit down and actually talk with with each other and actually make that a social event i guess um it requires a significant amount of effort and i'm not sure that uh, and I think even that is possibly in danger for a lot of people. So um, even if you're not necessarily isolated by yourself at home, physically, uh, psychosocially, we, we still may be like completely isolated. It's still that thing very much of having to be deliberate. Mm. Yeah, our life just, you know, Peter's description of going out and getting so much of your social needs met just by doing the things you needed to do, let alone anything you were willing to do. And I very much agree. You know, a lot of my social needs were met by just going out in the world and doing all the things I needed to do because podcasting is social and teaching is social and you know, consulting is social. 
all of them lead to nice amounts of time spent with people. But, you know, it, it's a weird thing I see that because being blind, I have to plan so much of what I do in more detail. I'm very used to being deliberate. But what I'm seeing is that lots of people are having to discover that actually this thing of becoming deliberate is really tiring. And you know, your observation, Tim, that it's what you do at home with someone you see every day, be like, hang on, are we really, really, you know, interacting, connecting at the level we need to, to genuinely have well-being? You know, we're getting more used to reflecting on that on a regular basis, which then is another reason to be even more deliberate. Mm. Well, I, I see a natural progression here uh, in some of those people who may be feeling bored aren't necessarily doing anything entertaining or trying to be productive with their time at home. Um, we were discussing before we even started recording about how parcels are backed up uh, at, by four weeks on standard shipping, uh, which of course means probably a lot of online shopping. Yep. Which you can't is, go to them all, you'll jump online. So we can still see that you know, shopping is still a number one activity for people to do to get you know, a thrill in their day and some endorphins. Yeah. In what they think, retail therapy, you know, this idea that um, we can relieve some of our anguish <laughs> by buying things. Um, this is what Johan Hari calls a junk value. Uh, which is, I guess, his third uh, disconnection, which is a disconnection from meaningful values. And how hard is it to tell what meaningful values are when you're stuck at home binging, you know, Netflix, gaming, and ordering Uber Eats? You know, it's almost a test at the moment of how much junk values you can deal with in a month. Yeah, true. Yeah, I, I think it kind of begs the question as to uh, whether that would even sustain people for a month, whether those things, whether people would even come to the realization that hang on, I'm not getting much out of this after doing a whole month of it. The fact that they're given the perfect storm, I guess, to be able to buy all, all things online, get as much Uber Eats as they want, um, watch as much Netflix as they want. Will that, will more people realize or will more people lose their appreciation for those things you think by the end of the month or I'm, I reckon they'll sure. double down and then double <laughs> down again first, because when something used to be fun, when it used to provide the endorphins, it's like drugs or alcohol or anything that gives us a buzz chocolate. What do you do if a little bit of something gives you a little buzz, mm. you consume more of it to get a bigger buzz. And as the buzz drops, people consume more and more. So I would have to assume that people's credit card bill for Uber Eats for, you know, whatever gaming platform and from, you know, whatever, however many streaming services they now have, like how many people have gone from one to two or two to three? I sadly have four. Don't judge me. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're a media guy. That's okay. It's, it's, it's sort of research. What did you have before this? Three? No, no, I've just always had four <laughs> okay, well, no since problem. Disney came out. Yeah, well, I don't have any problem with that then. But yeah, how many people have gone from one to two or two to three or three to four? My parents went from two to four. Yeah. You, you double down on what you know first until it breaks. And yeah. the, the problem with this is that with junk values, at the moment, because you can't easily go out and interact with anyone, you have to be very deliberate about, well, who are you going to do a Zoom call with? Who are you going to Skype? Who are you going to call? 
how are you going to get your way out of junk values without the process being even more psychologically painful? And secondarily, at the moment, sort of burning out on junk values is going to require an awful lot of money. So what's the credit card debt from this period of human history going to look like? Yeah, I mean, that's, this is something that Johan campaigns for, right? Is that uh, a, a guaranteed basic income? I think he's, he's really big on that because part of the book, I think he raises that um, financial strain and pressure is so inherently yeah, yeah. Collab- correlated or, or co- as a causal relationship with, um, with yeah, depression, I guess. Mm. Yeah, All right, mm. right. Exactly right. You know, it's, uh, let's say you live in a country that doesn't have the healthcare that Australia has. It means your, your, your father gets cancer or something and is sick with cancer and your sister has diabetes, juvenile diabetes, and can barely afford her insulin. Um, that's going to make your life shit. And that's mm. going to damage your brain and lower your serotonin. And, and yep. what Hari is saying is that the olden doctors, the, the conventional wisdom for a period was, ah, look, this man's brain has no serotonin. We fix the serotonin. It's like, it's not the serotonin in the brain that's the problem necessarily. It's the fact mm. that the father... What caused the serotonin level? Yeah, which, is, yeah. Which, is the, which can a lot of the time be economic issues. And, and that's that that's really the the fantastic um, point about Hari uh, that Hari makes about UBI, which is that you can with a with a real modicum of of expenditure you can alleviate a huge volume of suffering, uh, which would be which would be good, especially um, especially considering that so often the price of depression does it does have an impact economic impact in terms of the contribution of the individual, any services they might need if things go wrong. It's kind of a stitch in time saves nine type approach. The other thing with that too, of course, is that if you sort out the financial stressor for people, so again, you know, we, we're sort of jumping back to the, the benefits of work are twofold. There's meaning in work, but there's also income in work. But with basic income, if you go this path, and from an MMT perspective, we can have whole other debates about this, and we, we have and we will in future as well. But if you solve the financial pressure, people will move to then going, okay, I'm not worried about the money, but what am I going to do with my day? So the reality is that people don't just fixate on one thing. We're always being affected by a multitude of things. So not only does someone without money feel concerned about not having money, but they're likely to feel concerned that they're doing nothing with their life and life is a limited period of time. So it's a double pressure. If I don't have money, what am I going to do? I'm wasting time. What am I going to do? What meaning is there in this suffering? What am I going to do? So suddenly you're copying it in three ways simultaneously because of those questions of, of suffering and meaning that come out of you know, not having the, the resources to get on with your life the way you want. Hmm. The uh, examples, I guess, that Johan uses in the book is, you know, he looks at children uh, who really desperately want the latest Nike sneaker or, um, you know, I, I guess modern equivalents probably would be uh, like, you know, gaming consoles or toys, whatever it may be, um, because it brings them some kind of social status or it'll make them cooler or better people to have this next thing. And they find that basically studies show that they're not any happier once they 
are obtaining the next this next thing because it you know usually there's something else that they can get as you know, uh next so um and and it's not as if those things actually bring you any uh long lasting happiness it might might last a day you know um mm. until that euphoria is value of consumption for consumption's sake mm. but also that euphoria is is so fragile as well because you could pick up your brand shiny new thing and it doesn't take much to destroy that feeling. It wouldn't take much to go wrong with the rest of your day to pull that euphoria away. It's um, Mm. yeah. So it's like, Oh, I picked up my new thing, but then I got stuck in traffic for two hours and I couldn't play with it. Uh, You know, it's, it kind of takes the sheen off. So. Well, something at the moment, I wonder if it's a huge thing. These warehouses sitting full of parcels. How many people get a momentary buzz when they unpack their parcel, mm-hmm. but would get a day-long buzz if they could share it with someone who matters to them? Look what I got. And that other person is also excited. So at the moment, I wonder if the, the value of retail therapy is even leaning more towards the junk value end of the scale because you can't even share it with someone else who might be enthusiastic and therefore have a, a thing to share, bond, and enjoy together heck even even getting a new car getting a new house anything like that you almost can't even have people come around to help you move in no. it's like yeah. um well, look, the other week when i got my new microphone that we you know using today to do this part of the the sheer joy of getting it and getting it working and the reason i'm still enjoying it every time i use it is because it's all about doing fun interesting things with other people right so you can see that this thing in itself facilitates all these cool things with people that matter and that's the only reason it has value. Yeah, I was going to poo-poo the comment about a games console earlier as well. You can use that to connect to your friends. I agree. I was just yeah. about to make that point. Uh, you know, and it's and it's not a not an insignificant thing. In fact, I'm I'm really interested in in perhaps even in the future pursuing some research into exactly why um, we're seeing such a predominance of um, of young men playing video games and spending an in- incredible amount of time in there. And I think it's something like a search for meaningful values, whether yeah. that's camaraderie, to be, a hero. to be a hero, to progress, to achieve. It's almost as if in the absence of meaningful opportunity to advance in real life, young men in particular, but, 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 but people of all, of all genders are flocking to a virtual world that uh, allows for some of this progress ability. and success. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we can, we can tie that back into the, the neurological argument as well. It's those things drive us fundamentally that, that feeling of progressing, that feeling of mastering something of, of mm. uh, becoming friendly with a group of people who are willing to support you. Um, I will say, though, just to put a little dash of positivity, I have seen some wonderful things uh, recently. My friend's street, I'm still lucky enough that he's got an exercise bench and we can weight lift together. We simply swap towels and everything. Maybe we've got the lurg. I don't really care. Along his street, everyone, all of his neighbours have put a bunch of chairs on the street in front of their house on the sidewalk and in their front yard. And what some of these people do is they sit there with a cup of tea or a coffee on their side of the fence in their front yard and the neighbours will pop over and sit on the street and they'll have a chat. Um, So, I I don't know, I found that kind of 
uplifting. Really positive. Yeah. A little bit positive that people are just, you know, it sounds absurd to be sitting in your garden all day, but you know, they, they need that social thing and they're getting it at least. So I wonder if that's two sided. It's very much that need for people. And that's really possible. But the other thing that you guys were just hinting at with gaming, gaming is mastery, mastery over a situation, even if it's virtual thinking up that you've got the old chairs in the shed and you could put some on your side of the fence and some out in the front of the footpath. So you've got your two meter gap, but you can hang out with people. That's not just people. That's mastery over an uncomfortable situation. Yes. That's a wonderful twofold win in my opinion. Mm. And that, that possibly could explain the, uh, the teddy bear in the window phenomenon, which is, uh, which may be for international listeners, uh, in Australia, a fad has caught on of putting teddy bears in windows so that uh, kids who are driving around in cars during this weird time have something to, to look at and see kind of peeking out and lightening up the, the environment. And everyone has done it. I mean, a huge amount of people have done this thing to the point where it's a little absurd almost, but maybe that is just the, the need to be able to master or tame and... Being yeah. overwhelmed. Exactly. Resist being overwhelmed by an overwhelming situation. Mm. Mm. And you don't have to absolutely, you know, you don't, okay, how do I say this? It's not that this situation will totally and utterly overwhelm us and that we can come up with some way to overwhelm the situation. But every little bit of resistance is like, I'm strong enough to keep being okay. Mm. And if they're positive and they engage people and they engage meaning and they engage creativity in so many ways, we reinforce our capacity to be flexible and adaptable and achieve mastery, even over the uncomfortable. It, that's almost, that reminds me a, a lot of kind of, um, uh, of, uh, of, you know, Shinto tradition, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that there is some kind of um, literal fox spirit that will help you accumulate money so much as that, um, that if you focus on something and, and apply craft and creativity to something, it can generate a feeling or a motivation beyond the sum of its parts. But talking, uh, talking of young children, um, and how they're dealing with this current situation might actually segue rather neatly into um, Hari's next chapter. The childhood trauma thing. What was the example that they gave? I can't remember. It was pretty horrific. Oh, uh, I believe it was the overweight. Ah, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, it was the obesity thing. The um, he worked out how to treat obesity. Mm. Okay, from if I remember the chapter correctly about early trauma and its impact, uh, it was a really interesting example. It was a doctor who was given you know, a clean sheet of paper and a bag of money to try and deal with obesity. And, you know, it was very successful until this doctor realized that there was something deeper going on. And it was when one of his most successful patients he'd worked with, who'd lost a heap of weight, you know, she was looking fantastic. And she came in after losing a heap of weight and buying a new wardrobe. And everyone said to her in the clinic, oh, wow, you look fantastic. It's so good. You've lost the weight. And in the end, she ended up running out of the clinic crying. And the doctor was like, hang on. I, I don't know what's going on. But once again, let's, let's separate cause and effect here. 
you know, we're treating, you know, weight gain as if, you know, it's its own cause. What's an, what if it's an effect of something else? And when the young lady finally came back to the clinic and was willing to talk to him, the doctor made the point, look, I don't want to make you talk to me, but I, I need to understand what's going on so I can help other people. Can you explain to me when you started putting the weight on or why you started putting the weight on? And she went quiet for a minute and then turned around and said to the doctor, uh, I started eating the day after I was raped, so I wouldn't be noticeable anymore. And the whole chapter is about this idea that if there's been a major trauma in young people's lives, or in anyone's lives really, but in young people's lives in particular, that may be manifested physically in something like obesity, but very often is manifested in depression and anxiety that no one can get to the root cause of because whatever happened is so taboo or they just don't have the tools to talk about. So mental health issues like depression and anxiety can you know, be the, the consequence of a much earlier trauma. And very often we don't as a society or the medical world find a way to get to the cause. We just try and manage the effect. It reminds me of um, the MAOA gene, the warrior gene that you've brought up before. Dan. Yeah. Um, so, well, the psychopath gene. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's some crazy amount. I think uh, males are disproportionately affected by it. Uh, to One third of males have a so, damaged oh, really? MAOA. Yep. Yeah. And then I think, or well, it's something like 83% of all people who have uh, damaged MAOA are males as well. It's some, yeah. some statistic like that. So it often doesn't uh, affect females. But um, if you have a damaged MAOA protein, I think it was, sorry, or gene, whatever it is, sorry, gene, gene. and you experience some childhood trauma, which expresses the gene, uh, then you have a very high you are very highly likely to be incarcerated in your life or to, to become to, a very violent criminal yeah. who can't ever come back from the brink. That's yeah. right. Um, Whereas if you don't so, have the trauma, mm. the gene won't express and you can have the damaged gene and go on to live a perfectly normal life. Mm. So childhood so we see trauma. There are so many causes we really don't get to the heart of. Yeah. So childhood trauma is, it's sort of played down to some extent because we have these cultural depictions of therapists kind of talking about how, you know, what our parents did or what happened when we were young, you know, massively affects who we are today. And I think we sort of, in some, some ways, I think we make a bit of a joke about that, but um, not necessarily the rape parts of it i guess but i don't, I don't think there are too many people joking well, the about that point but... the doctor makes in the book in harry's book is that mm. when he started asking his patients okay yeah if you're not willing to talk to me about this that's fine mm. what we're discovering is that if people have had some sort of early life trauma that preceded starting to put lots of weight on and becoming obese the more we know about that the more we can treat that genuine cause which will make your weight loss more successful and what the doctor in question found is the majority of patients coming to his clinic to lose weight all had some sort of major childhood trauma from sexual abuse to physical abuse to psychological abuse to extreme bullying at school that it was the norm 
in his clinic. And I think the reason we perhaps don't know how to take this on board is how do you rationally, without the skills of a professional or the support of a professional, know where to start taking on the enormousness of your life having apparently been derailed when you're very young? think that's it's the just point that i was trying to thing. get to yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm. it's just such a big thing now the point is uh, you know human beings are incredible neuroplasticity is amazing with support people can overcome nearly anything but you need to know you can overcome it you need to know you're supported and you need someone to be able to provide you with the right information and support at the right time to help you do it but how do you know any of that's possible when you're ashamed or traumatized by what happened and have found a way to hide and be less obvious and less interesting to the world. Now, I guess just to relate this back to the situation we're in, I think we're seeing massive spikes in domestic violence at the moment. I've seen a lot of activism about that. I'm sure this is probably mm. extending to children in, in, in households with potentially violent parents as well. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait probably 20 years. I don't know, have 15 years before we see some of the results of, like you could envisage that in 15 years, there would be a massive spike of depression or something like that, that you would well, see results. What of what's I wonder in now. the short term is if we are going to go, oh, look, amount of childhood obesity and anxiety has gone up. It must be because of the COVID-19 lockdown. Yeah, could we please go a step beyond just calling it the COVID-19 lockdown and get to, well, why? Mm. Mm. Yes, a little bit of weight gain, a little bit of anxiety as a consequence of these very strange and stressful times, fine. That, that's all humans are going to be at risk of putting on a little bit of weight, drinking a bit more and being more stressed. But if these things become endemic in young people, what else happens? So I guess, you know, Johan Hari is challenging society to stop leaving things in the shadows that can have a profound effect on people if they're not identified and dealt with. Mm. Well, I'm not sure I have much to add to this one because I'm, I don't know, it's just, it's sort of. No, it's one of those ones where all I really want maybe people to think about is it's going to be easy to say in future oh, look, you know, that person started, you know, getting obese and anxious and depressed, you know, when COVID-19 happened. But let's, as a society, go, there might be more to this. So let's not just fob it off as another part of the obesity epidemic. Yeah, let's... Let's start asking, is the obesity epidemic a consequence of deeper psychological problems with deeper psychological and physical causes? Yeah. And let's have policy settings to help people get to the actual cause of what they're suffering yep. and to help them with the, you know, to deal with the cause, not just with the consequences. I think that's been put, I think you put that well. So let's move on. I think to uh, the discon disconnection from respect, um, which I think is also, I think he describes a status status and respect, uh, which is people feeling as if, if you feel a disconnection from status or, or respect that, um, your position in in the world in 
possibly primarily through work, um, but also even where you live, perhaps even your race or sex, if you uh, feel that way, can be a cause of depression because it's, it's a bit like the lobsters. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Yeah. That our, um, our, our societal status, um, our status in the outside world is very str- strongly linked to our uh, serotonin reuptake. So um, that seems to have fairly substantial research, I guess, um, behind Supporting that it. because it's, it's in all animals. I have very conflicted sort of thoughts about this idea of status because being blind and normally doing three things at a time because I've never found my one thing that pays consistently well that I'd like to do all the time. I have a, a weird sense of I'm not sure what my status is in the world. And if I spent too much time reflecting on it, may start asking some deep questions about meaning and self-worth. But the irony is that very often gets balanced by how many people value what I do. So whereas I go, if I sat down and scratched at this, I might ask some very difficult status questions I don't like the answers to. But thankfully, there's enough people who value what I do and enjoy what I do that the status thing stops being a potential issue. And I wonder for how many people there is this constant ambiguity in status between their own sense of self-worth and status and how other people perceive them. It seems highly dictated by what your values are. Yeah. Status can be celebrity and status can be almost local in some respect within your 150 person community. Yeah. yeah, within your Dunbar number, are you seen to be you know, meaningful and, and valued? Yeah. Mm. So, I, yeah, I'm. That that seems to be not terribly affected, let's say, um, by this current crisis, but nonetheless very important. I, I can't. Yeah, but if people were used to that constant social approval of a nod and a wave out in the world, and they're not getting it, so for really hyper-social people who, you know, social activity is oxygen. Mm. What's the current thing if, you know, because Zoom's not the same as, you know, going up and giving your friends a hug. No. You know, how many people I wonder really who do thrive on the oxygen of the just everyday social are really wondering, you know, where they fit and how much they're valued at the moment. Or if you even export your entire social network to a, a, a virtual social network. Sorry, that was actually poor wording. If you export your social status to a social network like Facebook, where you can quantify these things, you can, yeah, uh, like how many likes and shares and comments are you getting on every post? If that's the well, way that you are now trying to study on that, says people get more depressed if that's what they focus on. Exactly. And that seems to be a, a disconnect from respect, I think. Or status. A status is a better way to describe it. Describe it. Um, that's why I really don't like a lot of these platforms because I, I don't like the idea. I really do not like the idea of quantifying how connected you are to other people through those kinds of metrics um, because they're just not accurate. You don't know how someone is scrolling through or scrolling by or what's going through what's going through their mind when they choose not to like or to like something. Mm. And also the algorithm completely stuffs it up. So you don't know even how many people are seeing exactly what you've put out there and the people that you love are seeing the thing that 
you would hope that they would. Um, it's it's so it the um, connection I guess through most of these social networks is so diffuse um, and has such little um, feedback that it's a completely inaccurate way to measure your status against the people that you love and perhaps even people that you don't like but are friends with anyway on these platforms. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre it's a bizarre kind of uh, like a, a pastiche of of status and social interaction. And it's, it's kind of gone through this feedback loop where whatever the thing is that gets the most likes is the thing that people emulate in order to get likes and keep that dopamine hit, a neurochemical dopamine hit going. And then you get a kind of hyper rapid evolution of things like into TikToks um, mm. and that type of stuff in, in, um, in youth culture, which is, which is super weird. It's super weird. Um, it, it, it seems to crash in some ways. Like oh, it's, it's totally, yeah, totally grotesque. It's, it's like, like the junk, a bit like junk consumption. Is this all going to ratchet up five hundred percent before it breaks? Yeah, like, it's like kids going to be TikToking ten hours a day. They are, and that, and it's very, and it's, and it's very. A lot of the stuff is very, very salacious as well. So it's, it's kind of like, as the marketplace of content gets more driven towards what drives the most clicks. And that's what young people increasingly understand as self-esteem or popularity. Then it's going to it's going to keep on snowballing to this ridiculous extent. It's like it's like it's 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 social pornography. And yeah. I, look, I don't have a problem with pornography, um, nece well necessarily, but it it does it does have this this kind of diminishing neurological effect. Mm. That if you really went down that route, you could you could come to a weird place where your perhaps your, your relationships with people um, or your intimate partner might suffer. So in a similar way, I, I just don't know. I mean, we, we've already seen what's happening with young girls on Instagram. Mm. There's some, or, or Instagram culture, there's been some ridiculous increase in the amount of um, young female suicide uh, preteen and teen suicide in, in girls just as these big um, social media visual social media stuff has been coming up for probably precisely that reason so I don't know I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that because there's no sign that the that governments are interested or regulators are interested or um, parents. Or parents. Um, I think what I'd love to see with social media is a social media based around the Dunbar number. Mm. A social media that focuses on the 150 people you are closest to only mm. and doubles down on those genuine meaningful connections because it's always connections. And this would need to be a social media that can actually go, oh, you people actually go, you know, to uni or school together, or you work together, or you're in the same sports club. It would have to be genuinely going, no, 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 no. We need to see not just that you're following some celebrity. That's not going to have enough weight. It has to be the potential for, you know, a deeper form of connection and the social status of belonging, which again is a whole different kind of social status to, you know, how valued are you? Well, there's also the, the fundamental one of belonging. It's really interesting thinking about that because I could not imagine how difficult it would be to reduce my friends list to 150 people. I think a lot of people would struggle with that. Yeah, but that's only because you've been used to your whole life 
your whole adult life of having social media. Yeah. Well, me being older than you, I have no problem reducing it to under a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, I, <laughs> the thing is it would, it's like, I'm imagining doing that. Right. And this is effectively like having a, basically a wedding list. Right. Mm. And I can easily do it in that context. It's just that if I were to do it with like, say Facebook, for instance, it's roughly about a quarter. So I have 600 friends on Facebook and I've never wanted desired to have more than that. And even that I find troublesome is that it would be a lot of family members that I would be getting rid of just a bunch of people that you would just stop following what they're doing. Um, and I, that would, I think it is so now integrated into how we, into how we operate that I think it would actually genuinely harm some relationships if I oh, were yeah. to do that. Oh, people get insanely offended over social media stuff. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's taken on the role of historically having a smaller group of people you're very close to because you do see them all the time because mm. you can't do otherwise. Because mm. yeah. there used to be no way of seeing what all those other people were doing. So we need, a, we, isolation, we need an isolation social media. Just need to figure out how we can also make people buy hamburgers. So the Dunbar number and loving and people and getting getting information that's relevant to the interests of the people in your tight knit community and corporate sponsorship and then we're good. Then we're good. <laughs> you know what would be lovely? See, it like, hey, it's it's John's birthday today. And also, he loves golf and his golf tournament's coming up and it'd be great if you go and get McDonald's together on the way to it. I would not argue with this. If this is what Google advertising became, which was giving me good gift ideas for people, I would absolutely yeah, no problem. argue that. That would actually be infinitely more meaningful than the rubbish that pops up you know, <laughs> as the attempted advertising on my social media feeds. Yeah. You end up on one, one you know, whatever shop and then all of a sudden your your facebook is filled with like ads for roller skates or something and you're like i have no interest <laughs> well last time i replaced my blind watch my bradley mm. watch um it then gave me adverts to watch shops for the next nine weeks because it's too stupid to realize i bought the only good blind watch <laughs> crazy uh well so i mean i i was wrong in my assessment that status is, is probably going to be massively affected by the current crisis. People are relegating their social lives to these platforms. Then, um, the equilibrium is just, is going to be a distant memory. Yeah. Out of whack. If, if there was equilibrium, it's, it's gone now and there mm. wasn't equilibrium. So how much worse is the yeah. disruption now? That's right. Well, a really obvious one we can go to next is a disconnection from the natural world. But it's, I think, probably the easiest to solve in these times because it's, it's completely your own responsibility. And uh, I think so we don't have a police state in SA yet, so um, we are still no, able we to go. We won't need to. Yeah. But look at people's excitement in New South Wales about getting access to beaches back. Yeah. And all right, there's the dumbos that just want to go to the beach because they go to the beach, but it's the people who actually swim and run and just need the outside time. Just the sheer glee when they were interviewed, you know, about, wow, it's your first day back at the beach. It was almost like they were on the high from the run or the swim or the walk or watching the seagulls or watching the different shades of blue in the sky and the water, even before they started. Mm -hmm. 
So, I, I mean, it's a fairly easy remedy. I mean, cats are a really good one. I've seen, or, or pets rather, I've seen heaps of adoptions uh, and, uh, because it's something that you can invite into your home. Oh, another great one is that um, all the Bunnings have like sold out of seeds, plants yeah, and things plants. we've been selling. Again, I've got a begonia. Them. Well, we've got a begonia that I talk to every day. My first mm. question was, hello, begonia. Are you growing a new leaf today? Mm. <laughs> and every now I'm like, no, no, begonia. See you in the morning. <laughs> Your pet begonia. Uh, hey, it's a very pretty begonia. When we got it, it looked like an ugly dead twig and it's now got about 30 leaves. Mm. Wow. So it's kicking bottom as begonias go. <laughs> so um, whether it be inviting a bonsai or a, a Bengal cat into your home uh, or going for a hike outside, I think there are a lot of things that you can do personally um, to either bring nature to you or to go to nature um, and kind of fulfill some of this ancient <laughs> need uh, to be connected to the the world in which we're inextricably inextricably a part of. Um, I'm not sure how much of it is uh, is, is drawing on a uh, on a kind of a sacred need for for nature intrinsic need, although I, I do think that is part of it. I think what it might mostly be is that where animals that have that are designed for slow movement over the course of the day and yeah. um, the modern life has pretty much bound us to desks or sofas or mm. or wherever we're working normally i suppose predominantly sitting down and i think it's i think our body reacts in a in a way it's almost like a reaction to sickness or something going wrong it's right. like a, a deep unsettled feeling when you have to stay stationary and not move at all and not go outside um like when animals are taken from the wild and put in a zoo right yeah right uh, yep. I, you know i don't see that there's i mean obviously we're 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 pretty uh peculiar species but i i do think that there is that necessity of movement without which um we start to get a bit funny um, and the irony at the moment is that when we do do exercise, it's like, I'm doing exercise now. I will artificially do fast repetitions of something that's actually pointless, but I need to move. Mm. So even the exercise potentially, if, you know, like I can still do my yoga practice, which I enjoy normally and I enjoy now, but how many people have lost their normal happy exercise and now just to find some form of exercise? Like you made the point, Peter, of still being able to go around and lift weights with your friend. Yeah, the benefits of doing the thing you normally still enjoyed physically, mm. you know, it must be huge. Oh, it's it's an amazing luxury, and I'm aware of that of how lucky I am to have um, got the tools to do that. Yeah, I think it's it's probably it is that two parter. It's it's the operation like it's the normal operation of the human body within a non-industrialized world, um, as well as I think that when you have nature around you that some somehow the the air is fresher i think it's also it's it's it seems to be physiological and psychological mm -hmm. like being out with nature even though you know let's say chemically <laughs> the or the chemical composition of air would probably be the same mm -hmm. It, it there is this it's it's i don't know how to it's like crisper i don't know i think it's just yeah. that kind of imagery just it seems to be well you're more situationally aware because it's not the normal and you're interested mm. well that's true 
I just think that you can invite that into your home. I think totally. Absolutely. And that's what we need to be doing, whether it's, you know, the awesome begonia putting on a new leaf every second day or fluffy, the cat really doesn't mm. matter which find a way. Well, I guess that brings it to the final point of, let's say the more psychosocial ones, which I think is really what we kind of have to comment on, um, which is a disconnection from hope for a better future. Uh, and the idea is that eventually everyone, we're going to come out the other side of this whole thing and hopefully smart enough that we can prevent it from being as bad in the future. You would hope. And that is one of the big stresses as far as I'm concerned in this. I have no doubt we'll come out the other end of this. There's mm. too many smart people working on it. What I am concerned with is that we won't learn and we'll repeat all the dumb things we've done since the 1970s you know, all over again because our leaders have no imagination. Mm. I'm less worried about what the end point of coronavirus is than we don't learn from it and make a better world as a consequence of going through this. The point that I like to raise, because I hear a bit of it, but I don't, I'm not hearing enough of it because I think it's a really interesting conversation is that this is the second crisis that Generation Z is now like economic crisis, let's say, that they're about to go through. And they've been especially disproportionately affected by it, this one, as opposed to the as opposed to the global financial crisis, which they probably were probably just a bit too young to really have been affected by. Mm. Um, but there seems to be this pattern that is possibly saying to a bunch of young people that you, you might never own a home. Um, you might never have be in economic circumstances to really direct your future the way that you've been told you might be able to. Uh, and so you may never do any more than just survive, which yeah. for most of human history was normal. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. 150 years ago, we broke that cycle. We said to most yeah. people, life can be more than just surviving. I think that's the point. We're just we've getting told good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's the expectations that that would have been, that yeah. that is what they will grow into. And yeah. now that that might not be happening, or at least some point, some signs are pointing to that not being the case. Yep. I think has really very significant societal societal impacts. Uh, and this as... sort of leads into Ted Robert Gurr's idea that we have two kinds of expectations. Expectations it should get better and expectations mm. that it shouldn't get worse. Mm. Yeah. And our expectations that it should get better, we can kind of cope with them being dashed. Yeah. But if they get dashed and then also it gets worse, mm. that Ted Robert Gurr found in all his research is the point where revolutions start when both your expectations are broken. And it seems to me we are now past that line where for a very large number of people, probably under the age of 40, their expectations it should get better are probably Mm. looking pretty frazzled. Mm -hmm. And now they're having to go, okay, maybe it's also going to get worse and historically. And this doesn't mean we have to end up in violent revolution, but historically this suggests that there must be change because mm. people will not tolerate it both not getting better and getting worse, mm. you know, which is why I keep teaching people because if they've got to go out there and change the world, then I want them to do it in the nonviolent evolutionary way. That means the gains they achieve will stick. But a, a, a nice part of this conversation is that that expectations about things getting worse and better is exists on the societal plane and also exists on the personal plane. And obviously those things are interlaced, but um, I think the nice part about this conversation is that 
even if your external world, the circumstances in your external world are even worsening, there are, you know, there are a few other factors that you can be in control of um, that can... Mm. And that becomes even more important to be in control of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in terms of disconnection from our hopeful or secure future. One, one little tangent that I find interesting is the idea that I think it was a, a fact that I heard from Jordan Peterson originally. He was talking about there being a high correlation between income disparity and life dissatisfaction or, yeah. uh, or an increase in male aggression. And, and that's, that's an interesting one because, uh, you know, I, I do think we are seeing a decline, uh, a, back, a backflow from our parents' prosperity, from baby boomer prosperity. But the, the one thing that really irritates me, if I might talk about my pet peeve, is specifically the housing market as an indicator of, uh, of a quality of life. I, I don't think that's right. And we're talking about, because we're talking about open standing, uh, freestanding houses with a backyard in a suburban area that's near to a city. And the it's idea that we could, don't even want, or it's something that people don't want, but the idea yeah. that we could expand from an, a, a, a population in the way that we have in the last 50 years and still have that same quality of Australian dream, if you will. And judge it on those terms. Why hasn't the assessment changed? You know, exactly. We need to look at, we need to look at uh, maybe a more accurate way would be to look at what does your money buy you? What's the effectiveness mm. of goods that you buy? What's the quality mm. of, of things that are accessible to you? And, and I'm not saying that um, uh, prosperity hasn't slid back because I think it may have a little bit or maybe on the cusp. But um, in terms of people's perceptions of hope for the future, I think a lot of it might be to do with how the media constantly beams images of the super rich on us, how that's become inter uh, uh, entangled with celebrity culture and popular culture and has, I, I think has something to say for the feeling that people are experiencing that they don't have enough to enjoy life. Um, when in fact, I think in the West, we're still, we're still in Australia, let's say, perhaps we're still relatively comfortable as a country. Again, it's that yeah. question of relative deprivation. You know, it, it's not a case of how much we have. If we've all got similar amounts, then that's all there is. And guess what? We'll find a way to live around it and make the best. The problem is when we see that for no good reason, we have so much less and have to work so much harder. Yeah. You know, relative deprivation is the problem. Right. You know, equal societies, people cope and they find ways to enjoy life because well, if everyone's in the boat together and we're not all on the verge of starving, well, then you may as well find something to take pleasure in mm -hmm. because there is no obvious way to have more. So work out how to enjoy what you have more. Sounds Whereas like we can see disparity. <laughs> well, you don't need communism for it. You just got to look at most of human history. Yeah. Mm. Most of human history was the vast majority of people didn't have much, but guess what? Despite that, they found things to be joyful about because they went, well, what can I do to change the amount of physical things I have? Not a lot, but what can I do, you know, to live in a way where I enjoy it more? Mm. So, I mean, you could even say it to, you could extend relative deprivation to opportunities because I like describing Australia as the land of opportunity. 
Um, I mm. think that makes that makes more. I think that concept makes more sense than the uh, Australian dream does of mm-hmm. owning. A what house. we fear is a reduction in opportunities. Not that we want to take them all. Yeah, we may not want the conventional four bedroom brick veneer house with a useless front yard and a small backyard. Mm-hmm. We may not want it, but we don't want to lose the opportunity to have it. So, to my mind, what's going on at the moment is. Yeah, a fear of loss of opportunity, even if it's things we don't want. Mm-hmm. It's well, I don't have the option anymore potentially. Mm. And that feels like it's harming our our free will in some sense. Well, we're realizing that yeah. we've been promised freedom yeah. by a society that actually says you will conform to the social norms, or <laughs> we will make you an outsider. Mm. But I think this has been really productive. Any final comments, gentlemen? I'll start with you, Peter. Look, I, I think it's um, I think it's a, a fascinating book. If you haven't had the chance, I do recommend picking it up because I'm sure we've butchered a little bit. And Hari makes it really pleasant. He, he really strings a, a, a cohesive, pleasant narrative together. I would say that it's an interesting time. I like the way that he's pushing us to look at these problems in our lives uh, as more of a symptomatic of, of wider and possibly fixable phenomenon kind of broader mm. society and yeah look in terms of um a first foray or a big push big popular push into these themes i think he's done an incredible job with this book and i, I think it has kind of lit a bit of a public conversation about it but i do still encourage people if you've been feeling bad for a period of more than four weeks go to the gp see what they can do for you because you know the, the it's something like it's something like a 30 to 40% effective rate on a lot of these drugs, which in terms of getting rid of chronic depression, you know, so if you're, if you're feeling fed up with life, if you're, if you're feeling exhausted, don't get too put off uh, psychiatric drugs because they can help. And it might just be a 30 or 40% chance of completely curing yourself of the way you feel. So uh, go to the doctor, check it out. If you're in trouble, reach out to, to somebody you trust. And that's about it. Be good to each other out there, everyone. And David? I think just to add to that, you know, get the drugs and get the book and use the bump from the, the drugs to potentially go, right, now what things can I take control of which will make me feel re-empowered and to get you know, the benefit of both things at once. That the biggest thing in the world is to use every tool at your disposal, you know, to try and deal with anxiety and depression before they do you over Mm. and reduce your state of not being able to participate and enjoy life. And Mm. at the moment to realize that most people are not used to being this deliberate in how to live, how to socialize, how to connect, how to talk, how to deal with not being connected to nature, how to deal with being separated from people, from meaning in work, that there's going to be a lot of reflection come out of this and that can either be very positive or very destructive but an awful lot of that spectrum between very positive and very destructive is up to what you do with what you encounter and how willing you are to you know, ponder and act on your reflections far out well, I'd like to thank you both for uh, having that discussion with me. I think it's been really productive in terms of looking at this on a macro and micro scale, and especially within the circumstances we're in. So thank you, Peter. Yep, pleasure as always. And thank you, David. 
thank you gentlemen and thank you listeners hello listeners if you're enjoying our podcast please subscribe and like our facebook page search for blind insights with david olney also don't forget that we have merchandise thank you to the oscast network peace out Thank you.